Mrs. Orak. A hundred million for that. Is it a computer? It most certainly is not. It is a brain, a genius. It has a mind that can draw information from every computer containing one of my cells. Orak has access to the sum total of all the knowledge of all the known worlds. Hello and welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 13 where we are talking about ORAC. We've made it to the end of the season. We've made it to the end of series A or season 1, depending on which <laughs> terminology you want to use. ORAC was first broadcast on the 27th of March, 1978, written by Terry Nation, directed by Uvia Lorimer, who is back for another episode. The ratings on this were 10.6 million. So that's a big jump from last week. It is a big jump from last week. It is the second highest of series one behind project avalon which got 10.9 and it's actually the second highest for the whole of the series really the next time we get into the tens is actually in late season three which isn't to say that the ratings fell off a cliff in the next season but we went from sort of getting nines and tens to eights and nines right okay Uh, but so yeah this is actually a very highly rated Mm. episode and people did tune in for the finale cool well let's have a chat about it yes i enjoyed this one not as much as deliverance i think it is better than breakdown and bounty it is a very, very straightforward, linear plot mm-hmm. that is lifted by some very, very good performances by a lot of regulars, both the goodies and the baddies. Yeah, one of the notes I had that there is really only an A plot this week, and it's a very straightforward one too. Yeah, as we flagged a couple of times in our last episode talking about Deliverance, this really can only be assessed as part two of a two-parter. Mm-hmm. A lot of the early development is in Deliverance, and indeed, as I said last time, if you consider this a three-parter with Redemption, this is very much the middle segment that actually lacks both the intro and the climax. Yes, indeed. So it, it is a bit unfair, I think, to judge this as, as a standalone as episode. A standalone episode. Yeah. I've got a couple of other points to make, but Richard, your top thoughts? I had the note here, this is sort of a slower, low-key end to the season. It's not the big finale. No, and looking ahead, compared to the other three mm. season finales, it is not nearly in the same no. way in terms of intensity. I did wonder whether this perhaps just underscores where the production team and the cast and where everybody's at by this point. They're just totally burnt out. Not, not that this is a bad episode, but it's not really what you would expect for a big, punchy season finale. I'll agree with you halfway there, Richard. I agree that the production team is clearly burnt out at this stage. Mm. The script hasn't had quite the love that Deliverance got. The production values are quite poor for Blake Seven standards. However, I think on the other side, although the cast are tired, they've really got to grips with their character. Whether it's Servalan and Travis, Blake, Avon, Villa, yep. they've all really got to grips with their character and give some really good performances with the material they've got here. Yeah, that's fair. And I think that does save it from being a poor episode and it makes it quite watchable. Oh, for sure. As I said, I don't think this is a bad episode, but it's not a big bang finale. No, it's not. And no. that, that is a shame. But it does end on quite an intriguing cliffhanger. It does. I want to talk briefly about Once again, the compilation VHS tapes. Mm -hmm. This was the one that Volume 3 took its title from. It was called ORAC. Yep. And it covered Deliverance, ORAC, and Redemption. Which, as we said again last episode, is a very natural story arc to cover. Now, those tapes, again, took 150 minutes of television and put out a 120-minute tape. Now, Redemption only had about two or three minutes cut from it. Mm -hmm. Deliverance had about 10 minutes cut from it. 
which means that the remaining 20 or so minutes all had to come out of ORAC. <laughs> and I'm sorry to say, it actually is a better episode with 20 minutes cut out. Yeah, there is a bit of padding. There is a bit say. of padding. I think we're going to have a very mixed and up and down review of this episode because there's some really good stuff, great ideas, great character stuff. It is a very slow story. Mm. And look, that's, I think, going to reflect in here. It is the middle of a three-part story. It's very slow. Richard, I don't know if you had the same experience, but when I was doing my notes for this, there were large lengths where I was sitting there with nothing to write down because I sort of made the point and the scene kept going or similar things kept happening. Yeah, I did notice that a bit as well. But look, we'll get into it. Yep. As we said, there really is only one plot this week, so I think we'll be fairly linear probably in our progression. The first probably five, ten minutes really struck me just how much recapping there was. Yes, huge amount. Lots of very slow, and we're travelling, we're passing another planet, we're having a conversation, now we're past another planet. And look, I guess you had to do that because there were viewers perhaps who hadn't seen last week's. Well, nearly nearly two million people turned in yeah. who hadn't seen last week. So it turned out probably actually be quite a smart move. But yeah, there's a lot of recapping. I mean, Blake has gone to the point actually of making a log of his activities and what's been bothering him about the events on Cephalon. Yes, which, as the writers of the Liberation book point out, is an incredibly stupid thing for a terrorist to do, <laughs> have a detailed <laughs> log of all his activities. True. You get the idea he's obviously spent some time working through this, you know, what is the Federation willing to pay all this money for, what is ORAC? And it's a great shame because I think had they had a bit more time to really work out their script, mm. rather than that scene being, Avon, please sit in front of this little video I've made for five minutes and get a recap. Psst. If they'd actually put it in terms of, Avon, sit down, I want to fill you in on what happened while you were down on Cephalon yeah. and why I'm concerned and I want you to, you know, and I want to probe you about why you think this might be the case. And again, you notice, I'll just jump in, you notice actually it's Avon he chooses. Again, yes. Avon is the one who will probably be able to rationally work it out. Yes, so that, that scene actually could have been a really nice mm. meeting of equals between Blake and Avon, but unfortunately all it is is, please sit down and watch my last time on Blake 7 video. We do sort of get to see what would be the fourth wall almost of the, the mm. flight deck. Said, unfortunately, it's sort of just like a little patio sort of thing, really, with just a little view screen. Yeah, a couple of deck chairs and a view screen. Yeah, a bit unusual. But while this is going on, we start to see that the crew are all starting to feel a bit sick. They're all doing unwell acting. Yes. We obviously see Jenna is having trouble controlling the ship. She's got perspiration on her brow and she's clearly not feeling very well. Avon has his couple of moments of sort of ooh, dizzy spells. You notice Blake actually really doesn't pay much attention to that at all. He's far more focused on what's going on with this ORAC thing. Yeah, and that's an interesting point because we've spoken a lot about Blake's developing obsessive personality across Series 1. Mm. And here, I think we see it again, but in a different focus. He has clearly decided that ORAC is phenomenally important. He doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know what it does. He doesn't know why the Federation's willing to pay 100 million credits for but it. But he knows the Federation is willing to pay that sort of money for it. It's important to them, so it's suddenly really important to me. Yes, and therefore you see him become obsessive over it mm. to, as you say, almost the exclusion of the welfare of his crew. Yes. Considering last episode makes the point several times that we're on a planet with high radiation... It does take them a little while to work out, really, that they've all got radiation poisoning. Look, it does. I guess you have to have that dramatic development True. for the point of the plot. But look, Kelly gets there. She has a little Geiger counter device. And again, she's in the role of the ship's medic. Yes. I do love the way that there's a different reaction from the different members of the crew about it. Yeah. Villa gets quite nervous. Avon's like, it's cool, we'll take the drugs. And then she says, well, actually, we don't have drugs. And he's like, ah. Oh. They've all absorbed heavy doses of radiation. Radiation? All of me. 
The four of you went down to the surface of Cephalon, but you stayed down too long, far beyond the tolerance limits. You need treatment, and you need it quickly. Well, what are we waiting for? Let's get to the surgical unit. Relax. We'll all go on to a massive dose of decontaminant drugs. In a week or two, we should all recover. Not possible. Why not, Kelly? There are no decontaminant drugs on the ship. I've checked. There is nothing that will counter radiation sickness. Are you sure? I'm sure. Our only hope is they have a supply in Arista. And if they don't? They will have. But if they don't? They will have. There's no point in hiding it. Our condition will deteriorate rapidly. If we don't get drug treatment very soon, we shall die. That self-preservation moment with Villa, it kicks in and it's, I can't die. And Avon gets his great comeback. Die? I can't do that. I'm afraid you can. It's the one talent we all share, even you. I did have a note here. Does the radiation sickness plot serve any purpose other than to make Blake and Kelly the away team? Because they don't actually really do anything with it. They get to make the thing about their travelling to save a man's life in the hope that he in turn will be able to save theirs. But really, it's then just hand-waved away. I think it makes a nice narrative background and it means that the A and the A.2, if you like, plot, because not, it's not quite <laughs> worthy of a B plot, but it's, a, yeah. it's an A and a half plot. They do mirror each other quite nicely. Mm. And whether it's deliberate or fortuitous, it does mean we get to see some good interactions of the crew who are dying. Yes, because I sort of took the point, and again, as we said with Blake, the fact that the Federation are willing to pay all this money for whatever this ORAC thing is, and that they're prepared to obviously double-cross the Ensors and kill one of their own guys and whatever, surely would be a big enough flag that, well, hey, look, this is clearly something really important. we better get there. Yes. But it does also give them another motivation in that they need to go somewhere that has drugs. Mm. Which, again, is another Terry Nation cliche. Yes. The anti-radiation drugs going all the way back to Doctor Who and the Daleks in 1963. Yes, that's right. And in fact, he would come back to it in a year's time in Destiny of the, the Daleks. Daleks. And I did notice, well, that while all the important crew members are having this conversation on the flight deck, Gan just gets to listen from his cabin. Yes, he's eavesdropping. Yeah. Which I guess we come back to, because we do have the stuff later in the episode where Gan doesn't want to be alone. He's not, he doesn't want to die you know, in a corner by himself. Now, at this point, we obviously cross where we meet Ensor and a disembodied voice. I can't decide, Richard, if these scenes, and we get quite a few of them, are really nice character building, or they are pure padding. In some ways, they are sort of a what Ensor is doing while there's other stuff's going on. Like, they detect the landing of what's obviously Serverland and Travis's ship. The disembodied voice, which we must all say, we obviously know it's Orac. Yeah. Has the thing about what, what does Ensor want him to do? Does he want him to initiate the security protocols, etc.? We get to meet Ensor. He's clearly fading quite fast. He's touchy. He's irascible. He's eccentric. Yeah, so if I can jump in there... One of the things that I'm not sure about with this episode is, am I meant to be sympathetic towards Ensor or not? Is he a lovely old man that loves his plants and his fish and he's got a pet bird and, or a robot bird, I should say, and, <laughs> and you know, we're meant to feel really sorry for him when he dies? Or is he this irascible, unpleasant guy who is ruthless enough to say, look, I don't know who these random strangers are, so I'll just feed them to the Phibians? Mm. I generally don't know if we, how we're meant to feel about Ensor, or is he just meant to be this really 
bipolar, conflicted character. I sort of got the impression he's meant to be this eccentric old man. He's been living in seclusion for, was it, 40 years with just his son and Orac for company. Yeah. So, you know, he's picked up all these idiosyncrasies. You're right. In some ways, he's not really on screen and we don't see enough of him probably to form really any, any sort of real attachment to him. I mean, look, there is that obviously that moment when he does die towards the end. So given what we see of Ensor, do you take his offer to Servalan at face value? Or do you suspect that once Marriott arrived, something was going to happen to Marriott, Ensor would take the hundred million and then disappear again? You would think if he just needed medical assistance, he didn't have to go to contact Servalan. I mean, he could have gone somewhere else yes. to get the power source. So you would have to think he clearly either just wants the 100 million or he's now at a point where he wants to just disappear into the sunset and live on the, for whatever passes for an island paradise in the Blake 7 universe. Yes, space palmer de Mallorca. Yeah, that's right. We made the point when Travis and Servalan's ship lands they haven't identified themselves, so he thinks they're probably hostile. So, look, the Phibians can eat them. Mm. But he's not really what you would call callous, I wouldn't have thought. Yeah, I, I'm not sold either way. Mm. I got the feeling that actually the money was less important than the recognition. Yeah. This was his last work. This is his legacy. This is what's going to leave him in the history books one last time. Yep. Uh, so maybe that's why he's coming out of seclusion. And maybe you're right. Maybe the $100 million actually is something he wants so he can go and live out his last years at the space hilton or something yeah yeah. that's right although he has a lot of personality traits you don't actually really there's no real substance to ensor i think is probably the the thing he has a lot of quirks but he's not really a fully developed character no he is definitely morally ambiguous Mm. which makes him interesting whether it's just there's just not enough time really to sort of get to know him well we Um, could have had more scenes with him and less of Servalan and Travis walking around in caves. Yes, or indeed the bit with the transporter, but yes. <laughs> the upshot of this is Servalan and Travis have arrived on Aristo and they are now trying to make their way into the base. Now, it is a bit interesting that they suddenly just conveniently have a map of how to get past the force barrier. Given we're told how paranoid and security conscious the Ensors are, that they would have just given Servalan a map how to get in because you would think they would want the security in place until such time as they've made the exchange and then have the security still in place so that they're not double-crossed. Yeah, it's interesting. I I could rationalise it as being Ensor Junior gave it to them as a, this mm-hmm. is how you get in, but you're right, it doesn't really work. And given the process that Blake has put through, which is meant to be the legitimate process... Well, that's the thing. Given the fact that their level of security, they wouldn't give people a way to bypass the barrier, I wouldn't have thought. A point I want to make here is, one, just to give an example of, to my comment earlier about the production values really being quite low here. We have the entire ruined civilization represented by one obelisk. Yes, and, and some sort of... Some bricks. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but I will give it credit, though. The filming in proper caves is actually really well done. Mm, most oh. of it, yes. Yeah, again, like Project Avalon, they go to real caves. It's dark. It's not floodlit. It's wet. It's dank. It is actually a good yeah. use of set. We jump back, obviously, to the ship... At this point, Avon knows about Ensor and his work, being obviously the computer genius. Yes, there's a nice scene there where Blake's like, hey, I've worked out all about Ensor, let me tell you this. And Avon's like, yeah, I know. (laughs) I've had Zen run through the reference banks. Remarkable man, this Professor Ensor. Very impressive list of achievements. Yes, I know. When he was 18 years old, he developed something called the Tariel Cell. It led to a whole new generation of computers. Every computer in the known worlds now contains Tariel cells. He also engineered and developed a lot of radical new concepts in computer technology, so that even the most advanced computers are based on his work. 
I did like the little screen that then suddenly <laughs> appears on. <laughs> yeah, that is kind of cool. That is quite a cute. It, it makes no sense, but it is, you're right, it's kind of cute. Yeah. We then go through the rest of the stuff about Ensel's backstory about how he had his heart attack and he was fitted with a mechanical heart. And the whole reason for this is that the micro power cells that they keep pulling out at every opportunity in the little box. <laughs> yes. And then the sound guys have to keep dubbing in the buzzing sound <laughs> as they slide the box open. No, but nice attention to detail there. Which obviously now is why they start to come out of hiding. We get a mention of Aristo. Yes. Which has got acidic water, so tick another Terry Nation cliche box. <laughs> This probably is a bit indicative of how we found some of the scenes quite drawn out. As you said, we've made the point and then the scene just continues on. Yes, there's a very long scene about the radiation sickness and what's going to happen. There's a very long scene about Ensor. There's a very long scene about Aristo. Lots of exposition, lots of dialogue dumps that isn't done as cleverly and as wittily as you would normally expect from Black Seven. No. But look, to move on, they obviously arrive at Aristo... Orak detects their presence, and because Ensor's currently passed out, he initiates the full security protocols and takes over Zen. I'm assuming he must confirm Blake's story from reading Zen's databanks or something, because he doesn't really query Blake at all. Interesting. I made the note as well that Orak accepts without any just sort of tedious messing around that Blake's legitimate. I took it as very simply being, well, Orak knows that Ensor Jr. went to execute this plan... Mm. There's no other way that Blake would know about it other than to have met Ensor Jr. Yeah. So, so therefore, logic dictates Blake's legit. Yeah, okay. But yet, we need to note, though, Orak takes over Zen incredibly easily. Yes. And that is a big deal. We've seen how powerful and efficient Zen is in this series. Mm. And suddenly for him to be taken over like that is a big deal. And it does have some implications, probably, given what we're told about Ensor's work and how all the computers in the known worlds contain these tarial cells. Yes. It does have some big implications, really, for Zen's origins. Correct. Which obviously is leading into what will be the third part of this uh, trilogy, Redemption. That's right, which will be out in a couple of episodes time. Mm. Richard, the next note I have here is one word with an exclamation mark at the end, and that's just Phibians. Yes. There is a production point here. Via Lorimer, when he saw the costumes, was somewhat underwhelmed by them. So he makes, and I think a very good choice... He makes a choice to show them in a lot of flash close-ups. You never yes. really get a proper look at one. No, you see a claw, you see an eye. Yeah. It's the classic sci-fi only show a bit of the costume yeah. the costume's terrible. You know, look, they are a man in a rubber suit. Very definitely. Yeah. And, yeah, I think it actually works quite well. You're right, if we'd seen a full Fibbing in full lighting, it may not have been quite as forgiving. Yes, it is probably helped by the fact the tunnels are a bit dark. But look, the first encounter with them is when Servalan and Travis encounter them in the caves. Yep. Servalan is allowed to be scared, but doesn't scream. No, she's clearly unarmed. Yeah. And she is quite shaken by the Phibian attack. She has the moment, obviously, where she recomposes herself and reasserts her authority, and no, Travis, you will follow me. Yes, because Travis, first of all, has that sort of almost goading her, almost laughing at her line, and says, shall I go first, shall I? <laughs> and then she, she does reassert herself. I'll go first, shall I? No, Travis. You will follow me. I have to say, Travis is clearly an exceptionally good shot, because mm. he is some distance away from her when he shoots the Phibian. And that weapon on his hand actually is obviously extremely powerful because he kills it with one shot. Oh, yes. So it is obviously as powerful as he says in Cyclocate Destroy. Yes. Obviously, while this is going on, Blake and Callie have teleported down 
and we have the low point of the episode. Well, I was going to say the perhaps slightly more obvious padding where they're being given instructions by Aurak. Well, first of all, they sit on the gravel beach for half an hour. Yes, true. And then we have the whole scene of, and that is really, really tedious, I'm sorry to say, of, yeah, get in the transporter, where's the transporter? Here's the transport. Get in the transporter, where's the door? There's no door. Move around the other side. Now you first, now you got... Oh my God. Yes, indeed. Even in the cut-down VHS compilation tape, that scene drakes. I had the note here, we're 22 minutes in, I think, by the time they teleport, and then 32 minutes by the time they actually meet Ensor. I mean, we have had some Travis and Serpaland stuff cut in there, but... But it is 10 minutes of just them getting from a door to a room. Yes. I did quite like the line, though, about capturing the probe as a pet for Avon. (laughs) (laughs) I did think that was quite funny. Then, however, look, I've just described that, partly tongue-in-cheek, but let's face it, it's true, as the worst scene in the story. Mm. Uh, We then get one of the better scenes in the story, which is how all the crew on the Liberator are dealing with their mortality. It moves from... Jenna is being very active, trying to think of things to do. Should we be doing this? Should we be talking to them? Villa has convinced himself he's fine. Yes, and, and he's hiding in his cabin. Yes, because if he doesn't see other sick people, he won't be reminded he's sick. Yep. Gan is reduced to sort of grunting behind the teleport bay. Yeah, that's a bit weird. I mean, we do go back to that idea that he doesn't want to be alone. He doesn't yeah. want to die alone. If he's around other people, that will probably make it a bit better. And we also see Avon trying to keep calm, but he does actually lose it. And snaps, he does, he does snap. Again. Yes, he does. I mean, he controls himself again quite quickly, but you realise that it's now obviously really starting to get to him as well. Yeah. Not you as well. What are you doing down there? I don't like being on my own. Especially if I'm about to die. <sighs> That's cheerful. Sorry. Is Villa on his way as well? No. He's doing his best to convince himself that he feels fine. Says we'll just remind him that he doesn't. Sometimes he shows distinct signs of intelligence. Why don't you return to your quarters? I'll let you know the moment I hear anything. I'll stay. I think it's better if there are two of us standing by. Better still if there are three of us. Better still if you... And that, that's actually a really good scene. And it's the scenes like that that, to me, do save this episode, which could mm. have been very, very tedious. But he's saved by scenes like this. Mm. down on the planet, Kelly and Blake have finally got into the base. Yes, which is a very basic set, but it does have a roof. Yes, it does. Which allows at least for some different sort of filming techniques. Yeah. Again, we sort of meet Ensor and all his personality quirks that sort of just bluster. In some ways, I did wonder whether it's his way of sort of showing that he's happy, clearly, that he's not about to die. He goes on with his stuff about how he doesn't like doctors and, you know, he hates drugs and... Yes, you can't just get here and save my life. No, no, it has to be a drama. Yes. And then, of course, he has the sort of quieter moment where they mention the fact that his son is dead. Yes. Well, it's a quieter moment, I think, for him and for Callie, where Callie sort of makes the thing about, well, he tried very hard to reach you. Yeah, no, that is actually quite a poignant moment where he talks about, you know, death is such a waste. Death is always a waste. And Mm. I I wonder if he knew how much I loved him. He's obviously had no contact since Insul Jr. set off to contact the Federation. There's not even a sort of a, hey, look, yeah, they've agreed to all their terms, we're on our way Mm. back type message. It's very much my son has left me here to go off and do this thing, and and now, okay, he didn't make it back. Mm. But I did notice there Blake is actually noticeably either uncomfortable and or bored with Ensor's Again, the thing here is very much, 
obviously to get Ensor, get Orac, and get out of there before anybody from the Federation turns up or yeah. something bad happens. And we don't have time for a eulogy. Let's get on with this. Yeah, Blake is very focused yes. on the fact that we need to go. One, one interesting note I did have here, though, they do actually all, including Ensor himself, seem, as soon as he discovers they're not doctors, they do actually all seem quite resigned to the idea that Ensor is going to die and really all they're giving him is a chance. Mm. It's not come with us and, you know, we'll get you up to the ship, we'll fix you. It, it is sort of, well, at least you've got a chance if you come with us. Yeah. That, which quite, it's actually quite sobering, really, when you think about it, but... Well, you know, if it was you, you, what, you, you would cling to whatever life yeah. you had, yeah. But interestingly, Ensor is more focused, and, and, and naturally, correctly... Mm. He is more focused on, well, if this is my chance, okay, get me to the ship. Yes. And Black is to say, well, what about Orac? You know, oh, that's right, yeah, Orac. Yes. And, and you know, it's very natural that if you're you know, literally minutes from death and you had somewhere to go that may save your life, forget about everything else, get me there. Well, that's right. But, of course, once he's reminded about Orac, he does tell us finally what Orac is. Yes. And, and indeed, Blake makes the, the point, 100 million credits for that. Yes, but, look, let's just hear what Ensor says about what Orac is. Is it a computer? It most certainly is not. It is a brain, a genius. It has a mind that can draw information from every computer containing one of my cells. Orac has access to the sum total of all the knowledge of all the known worlds. You mean it can draw information from any other computer without a direct link? Precisely that, yes. We'll talk a bit more about that later because they are interrupted. Yes, at the vital moment, just yes. as they're about to leave. Income, Serverland and Travis. Yes. Now, we might talk about this scene and how it's staged perhaps in a few minutes because there are a couple of points to make there. But yes. it forces Blake and the others to go out sort of the back way, basically, out of the base, sort of the other entrance in the case. And again, there is another quite convenient map there for Serverland to find <laughs> that shows the route that they're going to take. Yes, and so they're able to uh, head them off at the pass, so to speak. I, I know a lot of commentators pick up on the fact about making Ensor carry Orac when he's not far off dying, but... Particularly when, early in the episode, he even makes the point, well... Look, if I sleep rather than just sit here, that will save me a few more minutes of life. Yes, so that's right. Clearly, every heartbeat is valuable. And, of course, we then have the scene where they're in the tunnels and Blake decides to stop to bring the roof down. Yes. In some ways, you can see, look, he doesn't know, perhaps, that they're not being followed. But you would think, really, that speed would be of the essence here. I would have thought, Kelly does say to him, well, wouldn't we be better to keep moving? And he's like, let me do it my way. Yeah, look, there's a couple of ways you can read it. One is that Blake basically knows that Ensor has no chance. He knows yeah. that they can't perform heart replacement surgery on the Liberator, so look, this guy's going to die. Whether it's here or in the Liberator in 10 minutes, doesn't matter. Mm. That's the kind of callous way to look at it. The perhaps less callous way is that Blake is both focused on his survival, but also perhaps doesn't appreciate that Ensor is literally down to his last few minutes. Mm. Or maybe, you know, as we said, he's just so focused that he's just not thinking about these things. There's a couple of ways you can read it. While they're moving through the tunnels, Ensor clearly has to stop and rest, and that does become his final resting place. Yes. Look, they do take the poignant moment that he has died, and, and that's the end. But unfortunately, they sort of wreck it by the fact that when they turn the camera around, they're actually only about 20 feet from the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Which is sort of like, well, why didn't you notice that a few minutes ago? That, unfortunately, is not particularly well staged. No, but look, it's the plot point that has to happen. Mm. I mean, let's face it, Ensor is not going to become a part of the Liberator crew. No, so. well, that's true. There's sort of more time wasted when they get out of the tunnel. Blake makes a point, he shuts the lid, he puts the rock on it, rather than just sort of, right, we're up, get us the hell out of here. 
While this has been going on, back up on the Liberator, Avon clearly has decided he's not going to die sitting at the teleport controls. Yes. So he gets into his surface gear, makes Villa get into his surface gear, and they teleport down to see whether they can assist the situation. And by assist, I kind of took to be, I'll go down and see why Blake's wasting his time and say, give me those drugs. Yes. And you notice, actually, when they do reunite with Blake and Callie, Villa's first thing is, did you get the drugs? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to die, am I? (laughs) Yeah. No. And, And again, very natural. Yes. Of course, just as they're about to teleport... They again are caught up by Travis and Serverland. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, Serverland stops Travis killing Blake, but then a minute or two later says, will you go ahead? Yeah, look, she stopped him for no other purpose than that the plot needed her to. Yeah. It, I, it doesn't work. No, I did sort of have the thing perhaps where she also realises that Travis is going to kill Blake regardless of what she says. So, okay, fine, go ahead. But you're right. I think it is very much, okay, we've got them cornered. How do we get them out of this without them being killed? You could be generous and say that she just wants him to actually confirm, yes, that box is Orac. Mm. But, yeah. And, of course, Avon saves the day. Uh, yes. Ah! Ah! Don't move. Good shot, Avon. I was aiming for his head. <laughs> and you notice he's ready to kill Sir oh, yeah. and Travis. Oh, yeah. Until Blake obviously does his thing about, no, humiliating them would be better. That has never worked for me. Even as a kid watching this, mm. I thought that was a bit pathetic. And it it just is... It's something that Blake Seven has managed to avoid reasonably well in these things. Of that whole, well, I'm going to let the baddie go because we need to have you back next week. They do it because Blake spares him in Jewel because that's cheating the aliens of what they want. That's right. In Project Avalon, he can't because of the way it's set up, etc., yep. etc. Et this one, it really just is, I'm not going to kill you because... We need you to come back next week. Yes, that's right. I know you're still under contract. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea of let us take like like this idea that Blake's going to ring up Councillor Burkle or something and say, "Hey, just letting you know this cool story that happened on Aristo." And yep. Burkle's going to be like, "What the hell are you talking about? Yeah, I mean, why I should think I believe so. it? It's just stupid. It's just stupid." Yeah. But that's not the actual final scene of the. No, of course we do have the final sort of uh, coda, I guess, or epilogue. Back on the Liberator, the crew are clearly now starting to take their radiation drugs. Yes, they're all feeling a lot more chipper. Yep, and they now decide to see what Orak actually is. Yes, so he's a box of flashing lights. <laughs> <laughs> he's got Ensor's personality, and on this occasion, Ensor's voice. He's shown to be every bit as idiosyncratic and sort of snarky and whatever as Ensor was. Yes, he's shown to be capable of evasion. Yep. He has the lines like, modesty is dishonesty. Yeah, and you get to the point even Avon really is sick of the circular conversation they're having. Yeah, and I was just going to say, though, even though for all of Orak's abilities, which Orak himself talks up as being very powerful, Mm. Avon makes a very clear point of comparing him to Zen and putting Orak very clearly in the box of, no, this is a computer. So to put Orak to the test, they decide to get Orak to make a prediction, Mm -hmm. which turns out to be the Liberator flying through space. (laughs) Well, that's what they think. Yeah. But yes, they do then obviously lead into the prediction that space vehicle will be destroyed. Yes. And it's shot in a very ambiguous way. I do remember when I saw this, probably it would have been, what, nine, I think, when it was first on. I do remember sort of what actually just happened then. Yeah, because 
most of the prediction is actually shown on the view screen. Yes. But the explosion of the Liberator mm. is shown as a normal shot. Yes, as if they're in space. Yeah, so it's actually not clear if that actually was the Liberator blowing up. Cut to credits. No, and apparently they did receive quite a few letters and that from viewers that are wondering, well, actually, what, what did we just watch? <laughs> but yeah, I do remember as a nine-year-old sitting there thinking, well, hang on, does that mean they're all dead? Yeah, uh, look, it would have been much clearer had the explosion clearly happened on the view screen. But... Nevertheless, look, we know that there's another episode after this. In yes. Fact, there's another three series after yes, this. Yes, that's exactly right. So we are left with Orak's prediction that the Liberator will be destroyed. Mm. I have got a few production notes. We mentioned in Deliverance that the plan was that Blake would be the one who went down to Cephalon and that Avon would be the one who actually teleported down to Aristo to go after Orak. Last time we sort of said we thought there'd be a logistical reason for that around location filming versus rehearsals for the studio stuff. And that is the thing here. The location filming for this was done during studio rehearsals for Deliverance. So, you know, Gareth Thomas and Jan Chappell can obviously come off and film the location stuff here while the rest of the crew rehearse with MEGAT. It makes you wonder whether Blake's indifference to Ensor and callousness Mm. or implied callousness actually is a holdover of this being scripted for Avon. Maybe. There is another explanation, which is the production team realised that Avon getting his hands on Orac would probably mean he would abandon the crew. <laughs> um, so they, they couldn't really have that happen. Yeah. So okay. And the thing with Orac's personality was a Terry Nation thing. There was apparently some discussion around what sort of role Orac would play in the series going forward. Terry Nation very quickly realised that by giving them Warak, he'd given them a tool that would get them out of anything. So how do I make that difficult for them to use? You make Warak very difficult to work with. Yeah. Now, we did mention during the discussion about the scene where Travis and Serverland break into Ensor's lab. If you notice the way that scene is staged, you never actually see Travis's face. Yeah, I must admit, I did notice it this time. When you're watching this to take notes, it's actually quite obvious. Yeah, it is. And the reason for that is because it's not actually... Stephen Greif. He had injured his Achilles tendon playing squash right before they were about to go into the studio. So they had to get an extra in basically in Travis's costume. And if you watch, yeah, it's all shot with Travis with his arm up over his face. It's shot through the fish tank. It's shot from the waist down. And he came in and dubbed his voice because he couldn't walk. So he obviously was unable to take any part in the studio recording. A couple other notes I had. When the probe first shoots at Blake and Callie to make them stand still and drop their weapons. You can hear Jan Chappell sort of give a big yelp as the explosion goes off. Apparently that was because they were told it would be quite a small explosion and the visual effects guys clearly put a bit more powder in there than than intended. As they always did. Yes, and she apparently refused. And I think it must be the bit where Travis shoots at them when they're about to teleport back to the ship. You notice that's just an explosion in a bit of open ground Mm. because she apparently refused to to be a part of a, a similar stunt later in the day. Okay. So that would be that. A couple other quick notes. The shot of Avon and Villa arriving on Aristo, you notice that's done by CSO because that was quite a late addition to the script. Yes. Orac was designed by BBC effects legend Matt Irvine. It was actually built by Andy Lazell. They built Orac's case first because it was the bit was required for the location <laughs> filming. How pragmatic. Yes, and then built the prop to fit the case. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. You do notice when they have the scenes in the teleport bay, there's now only five teleport bracelets <laughs> left. Probably really fortuitous we're now at the end of the season. And probably just leading into the discussion we've had around the pressure and everything that the production is under. This is filmed a week before it's actually due to go out. Wow. And it goes to Dudley Simpson to put the incidental music on probably only about two or three days before it's finished. Wow. Yeah, this is really done right at the last minute. So there you go. There's a few sort of very quick production notes. 
which now we'll head into our regular segments. Now, we only have one guest cast member this week. Uh, yes, but with quite an extensive set of credits. Yes, indeed, which of course is Derek Farr. Uh, yes, so look, a huge career with a lot of regular roles, lots of series that have, you know, in many ways lost the mist of time. Uh, his first role was in 1938. Yeah, he worked sort of pre war. He actually started out as a school teacher. Yes. Then drifted into acting, and before his career was obviously cut short by the Second World War. Yeah, 1938 in Miracles Do Happen. He was in The Dam Busters. Yes, he was. He did an episode of Adam Adamant Lives. <laughs> uh, he was in Big Boy Now, London Belongs to Me as a regular. Return of the Antelope, for those who were perhaps of my age and remember that from the 80s. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I don't remember that It was that a one. children's TV show. He did a lot of those TV Shakespeare's that did in the 1980s. Right, okay. Um, where they were doing those quite high budget for TV yep. Shakespeare's. He was in a lot of those. But yeah, huge range of credits. And... Look, I think it was fairly obvious that Derek Farr was not going to spend the next three years voicing Orac. Uh, but look here, yeah, he makes a part that is very sketchily written human. So credit to him. Yeah, I thought he was quite good. But now we move on to our Liberator database. So look, Orac is obviously the big thing that's added to the universe here. Mm-hmm. It's stated that Ensor has a mechanical heart, which is seen as being really primitive. I'm quite backward, and then the expectation was that he would have it replaced with an organic unit. So organ replacement with organic parts or organic replacements is obviously quite commonplace yes. uh, by this time. I noted here that although the Liberator has a very good surgery, it doesn't have a large supply of basic drugs. No. Which does, I think, actually reflect some of what we see about the Liberator in the next episode. Mm-hmm. Another point that I think we need to make from our universe building point of view, Avon meets Servalan. Yes, indeed, for the first time. Yes, and when I say meets, he stands near her. And points a gun at her. Yeah, there's actually no interaction, but he does at least physically meet Serverland. Yes, he does. One thing, again, probably around just the Blake 7 universe, Zen states that life is evolving on Aristo, which probably suggests that the original civilizations he talks about perhaps were colonists that maybe have abandoned the planet due to oh, the rising okay. sea levels or something like that. Yep. So now we move to, look, it was the 1970s. <laughs> now, so perhaps we might have a quick talk about ORAC and ORAC's capabilities. Because it's very easy to say, look, ORAC is really just wireless internet. Yeah. It would have been quite a radical concept in the late 1970s that you have a computer that can read from any other computer. Yes, and even that ability to control other computers yes. is, even now, an incredibly powerful concept. It's probably in keeping, again, we are, and we've mentioned a few times, we're pre-software revolution. So, of course, Blake 7 is a very hardware oriented universe and i guess orac being able to read and control other computers is in keeping with that yes and particularly the way that it does it is through a tarial cell yes which is a physical thing inside the computer yes it has to have a tarial cell which yeah. obviously the inference is therefore that zen clearly has tarial cells as well or something analogous or, or, to them, yes, yes something analogous that he can read we did sort of go through some of the terrination tropes here about the acidic seas and whatever. Here it is really the radiation sickness, I think, mm. is very much a trope. A couple of points I had here. From a production point of view, I do need to note the amusement that one of the planets they pass between Cephalon and Aristo is Cephalon on its side. <laughs> I didn't notice that. That's very good. Uh, but credit to them, the Aristo model is actually very good and they actually have made an attempt here to make the model look like the script and actually have it a very water-covered planet. Yeah, 90% of the planet's water. And from a genuine 1970s point of view, I just did note that the first heart replacement surgery was done in 1967, yes. but it was by no means routine in the 1970s. No. It was very, very much a luxury. Mm. There you go. So, the first of our more fun segments is yes. Gan Watch. Yes. Now, Gan doesn't have much to do here other than eavesdrop from his bedroom 
and then be found grunting behind the Liberator teleport bay. No, I did have the note here, he really doesn't have much to do this week other than be sick, Yeah, really. I suppose because there's really only a single plot, other than Blake and Callie, the other regulars don't really get a lot to do. No. But I think you're right. I think Gan probably gets the least to do of all of them. And we've mentioned it a couple of times. It does reinforce that idea that he doesn't want to be alone. He can't be alone. He perhaps wants to know that he's at least sharing his death with other people rather than just dying alone in a corner. It is unfortunately another example, though, of where Gan is diminished because when Avon snaps at him, he doesn't get to say anything back. No. He doesn't get to stand up for himself. He just sort of cops it and then goes and sits quietly in a corner. Which is a shame because it would have been a nice character moment for him to sort of say, you know what, I could be dead in half an hour. Avon, you're a dick. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to smash you, actually. Yeah. You've had this coming for a while. Yeah. Yep. So not really a big Gan episode. So our next segment is, what cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? (laughs) And he only has a couple of lines, but most of them are pretty good. There was the one we flagged earlier where Villa says, die, I can't do that. I'm afraid you can. It's the one talent we all share. Even you. Yes, and we did also mention the fact that he says, it's ironic, isn't it? We're racing to deliver medical supplies that will save a man's life in the hope that he will have medical supplies that will save ours. <laughs> His instruction to Villa, where he says to Villa, we're going down to the planet. Villa says, I can barely walk. Then crawl, but put that on. You notice actually that he's obviously taking stimulants to keep himself going. Mm. across that time, and he gives one to Villa. There is, of course, one of his more famous lines here where he shoots Travis's hand and then says, I was aiming for his head. (laughs) This is perhaps where we first see his and Chris Boucher's mutual love of westerns, because that is a line from the original Magnificent Seven, (laughs) which is, and it's actually James Coburn line where he says, I was aiming for the horse. (laughs) Is the original line. Yeah. There you go. So, once again, we're at the end of the episode, and we're at the end of the season, but your player of the week. I found it really tricky to pick a player of the week this week, not because anybody is terrible, in fact, they're all pretty good, but because it was very, very even. In the end, I've gone for Paul Darrow, because he does take a very small part, but does a huge amount with it, is incredibly watchable, and look, it's only by a couple of points, you know, Gareth Thomas is great, Stephen Greif is great, yep. Derek Fard does pretty well, but... Just on a couple of points, I had to go with Paul Darrow. Yep. Okay. And you? I'm actually going to cop out and give it to the cast and production team. (laughs) Okay. For making it to the end of the season just about intact. They're under a huge amount of time and budgetary pressure across the season. This really is that sort of last stagger, I think, to the finish line. Yeah, Um, look, I laugh, but I actually have to admit, I did toy with giving it to Terry Nation for this one. Yep. In the end, I couldn't because this isn't his best work for the series. No, it's not. But as a reflection of the fact that even 13 episodes later, he's still got a script that works, that has some cool ideas Mm. that gets to there. So look, look, I'm not going to let you go. It is a (laughs) cop-out. But it's what I can respect and understand, so fair enough. Yeah, I just felt, again, because I mean, perhaps we'll talk about this when we come back for our season special next fortnight, but the sheer time pressure and everything they're under across this series, as I said, this does feel to feel like that last gap just to get to the finish line. Yeah, well, as you said, we'll talk more about it in our next episode, but... But they made it. They did made it. I think that Bounty was the low point, but mm. they've picked up from there. The ending is not nearly as bad as it could have been, and in fact, I found quite watchable. Yep, likewise. But as I said there, we will talk more about Season 1 in our next episode, which will be a Series A special. That's right. We'll have an overview, look at the series as a whole, look at all the points we've sort of missed out and have the first of our series-based regular segments. Yes. And then after that, we'll be back with Redemption. Mm. But I've enjoyed this episode more than I thought I would.
There you go. And that's really all you can say. That's all you can say. So, I've been Dave. I've been Richard. Set course for Space World. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. Now. You and I are going down to the surface. Put that on. Are you out of your mind? I'm finding it hard enough just to stay on my feet. Then claw, but put that on.